0: Hello, and welcome to the Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. Our aim is to introduce you to changemakers who are reimagining what students need to know, how they will learn it, and ways technology can help or not. We're looking at reopening schools in the wake of COVID and how learning is changing. We wanna know how to close equity gaps and prepare students with the mindsets and skills to thrive in what is proving to be a very uncertain world. I'm your host, Jenny Anderson. Head over to learnit.world to join the community or to get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is Lisa Barrett, Vice President of Learning and Delivery at White Hat. Its ambition is to democratize access to the best careers by disrupting the assumption that only a university degree can get you a job at some of the most high profile and fast growing companies. Founded in the UK in 2016 by Ewan Blair, son of Tony Blair, former UK Prime Minister, White Hat has received 100,000 applications in the last two years, including a surge since the pandemic started, while apprenticeships generally fell during that time. 2,000 of those candidates became apprentices, benefiting from the coaching, matching, and community White Hat offers. Its goal is audacious for 35% of school leavers to pick an apprenticeship, a far cry from the eight to 9% who choose that route today. It takes a long time for very
1: established things to change. so I think we're very much at the beginning of this conversation educational institutions, higher ed, government spending, this is an oil tanker, right? So it's not gonna turn
0: quickly, but I think that turn is starting to happen. We discussed the need to develop and value cheaper alternative career pathways, the importance of coaching and coachability, and how to recruit based on identifying people's superpowers. Let's start with White Hat, which was founded in 2016 by Ewan Blair. What problem is White Hat solving? I would say, this two ways. So one is that
1: White Hat was founded as an alternative pathway to university. So what you and really saw and what we've seen is that this concept of a one size fits all model and a one shot of education at the beginning of your career is really outdated. So we really look at that and say, gosh, there needs to be something different and it has to be high quality and it has to be equally appealing and it has to, you know, do a whole bunch of things. And then the second is is really to say reconceptualizing the world of training, education and work. So we do it through apprenticeships. We do it through combining work and learning because we think it doesn't make sense to do these things separate. But what that results in is us saying, well, gosh, that looks like, you know, let's make sure that people get training and they get education that they're immediately applying to their job and they have that immediate feedback loop. You know, let's make sure that we're closing that knowing, doing gap, as we would call it. Let's make sure that people can upskill at any point in their career. So I think sometimes when we say the word apprentice, you might hear, you know, 16 year old or 20 year old or 22 year old, but an apprenticeship really can be for any age and it's going to have to be. So as we go through our careers and we, need new skills, then we think an apprenticeship is a really good way to immediately get those skills and apply them in your job.
0: And what do your
1: apprentices look like just by age? So we we certainly have a heavy focus on 16 to 24-year-olds because we have more and more folks who are saying, gosh, I want to work at Google um, and, you know, I want to do these things and does a university degree really make sense for me at this point in my career? And, uh, and a lot of people increasingly are, say, are saying no, but then we also have, we really have the range. So any, any working person in a company who, for example, wants to learn data visualization skills might be someone who's on our data visualization apprenticeship.
0: So I could have a job in one type of job. I might say I'm a bookkeeper, but I want to completely pivot. I can sign up with you and do that with you and use that as a tool to reposition my career.
1: Yeah, that's right. So we, do, so we do two things. We work with apprentices where we recruit apprentices into roles in companies. So a company will come to us and say, gosh, you know, we need X amount of these people and we want diverse people who are going to be you know, highly motivated and successful. Can you help us do that? And, we'll, and we'll, we'll recruit those folks. And then we also have companies coming and saying with our existing workforce, we need them to have, you know, X, Y, and Z skills. And we'll train, for example, you know, project managers of the future. Again, data is obviously a big one, digital marketing, but, but any of those types of skills.
0: So you're a matching engine for apprenticeships and employers, but also sort of a coaching, training, mentoring organization to make sure employers are getting what they need to recruit and to upskill.
1: That's, yeah, that's it. And actually, I'd add one more. So I would say absolutely on the matching, the apprentices and the companies, absolutely on the upskilling. And the, and the third one is we're really a community. So we have a very, very strong lifelong community of people who have done an apprenticeship at White Hat or are doing an apprenticeship at White Hat. And that's just really worth mentioning because... We know that, that, that those connections, those aspirations, a lot of the things that people would get from going to a really elite university happen through the network and the connections that they, that they make. So, for example, we'll have uh, people come and talk to white hat apprentices who you don't normally have access to. You know, people who are, have been at the highest levels of government or organizations. And also it becomes a place for people to continually upskill as well and to connect with each other. And we think that's really, really
0: important. And what are the areas that you focus on and where are you seeing the most growth? So um,
1: we have what we call business associate, which is kind of all business um, entry skills. We do accounting, um, we do project management, we do data uh, and data visualization, we do digital marketing, and I'm probably forgetting a few on the fly. Um, We by far are seeing the most growth in, in data. So I think what's happening is not only our companies grabbing onto the, the, the capability of data, but they also are saying, we need people to be a lot more data fluent and able to, to do things with those data, to get to visualize them, to create tools that are gonna allow us to make better decisions.
0: And just briefly for people who are not from the UK, what is the apprenticeship uh, levy and how does that help you both financially and politically?
1: Yeah, th- that's really important. So the, the government here has made a decision to have a very specific type of funding, again, as an alternative pathway to university and said, we will uh, tax uh, companies at a certain rate. So we'll basically kind of take a, it's really a levy, uh, but we'll take, you know, a half a percent of, of payroll and then say that has to be dedicated to reskilling and, and training people or, or upskilling people. Um, and that money goes toward apprenticeships. So there's a set of standards and there are apprenticeships that can go in that category. And that is um, a fair amount of the work uh, that we do. So when, it, when, a, when a company wants to, again, train people for skills of the future, the government in, 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 in this model actually is
0: paying for a fair amount of that. And where would you put the U.S.? If you put, line up sort of the U.S., the U.K., and Germany?
1: Well, the, the U.S. is in lots of ways progressive around these things. And there's a conversation happening in the U.S. called, why is education so expensive? Why are people carrying so much debt around it? Is it really linked properly to job outcomes? And by the way, what's the return on investment for taxpayers and for the government? So you put all those things together and you've got a, a, a place where you can have a really, really disruptive model. Now Germany is, you know, it's more in the European model, it's more certificate based, it's, it's more um, in, in, in line with those things if you need all the right things in order to do a certain job. The US is a funny mix where in some ways people really just care about outcomes, can you actually do the job or not, but at the same time people really value a university degree. So the one thing that the U.S. really needs to get right is valuing an apprenticeship at the same same level as a a university. And the way we think you do that in the first instance is when world-class employers like big tech companies, like big banks and others are hiring people based on an apprenticeship and without a university degree, then you're going to see that change.
0: Reading some of the original coverage of White Hat, it got a lot of immediate attention. I should let listeners know Ewan Blair is the son of Tony Blair. So it is, um, at its start, it certainly got a lot of attention. Um, and Tony Blair pushed to get so many people into higher education. And his son is kind of saying, we, we want a revolution um, to go the other way. And so I guess my question is, is White Hat calling for a higher ed revolution? And what does that mean?
1: Yeah, we are. So if you, I mean, if you think about the initial intention of what it was that Tony Blair was trying to do. He was trying to level the playing field and he was trying to, to say, everyone should have these equal, this equal chance, and these opportunities to have access to, to great careers and to a great life. The the problem with focusing that on universities meant that you were focusing this whole conversation on again, a model that's really outdated, that was invented for a different point in time in a different system. And, and by the way, it's hugely expensive. And again, will will definitely be under scrutiny for return on investment during this time period so what what Ewan has said in a, in a reversal of that sort of policy direction is is, yes, we need to continue to to create a place and a level playing field and and these mechanisms, but you can't have a one size fits all system and so yeah, I think this is really a revolution in lots of ways. I mean, what we're saying is there's a place for universities um, there's a role for them and there's really good work that they do. But gosh, we're trying to use universities to solve all these other problems. And it, it really does not make sense for a lot of jobs. And that's why you have high dropout rates from universities, which people don't talk about. You have people coming out of universities who still can't get jobs. You know, again, people don't talk about. And then in the U.S., again, you hear this very, very often it just again about the, 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 the debt that people are paying back for a long time, and saying, oh my gosh, how did I end up in this situation where I thought this was my only option, I thought this is what you do, but now actually I'm paying back huge huge amounts of debt and by the way, I didn't even major in the right thing.
0: So I buy everything you've just said and I think there's some really compelling data behind all that. And yet the data would suggest that having a college degree in the United States and in the UK is far better than not having that degree in terms of everything from happiness, mortality, um, I mean, there's just such a wide range of metrics that say having that degree. And I almost feel like that has been a huge driver in inequality. If you don't have that degree, it's gonna punish you. And this is really challenging that in, a, in an interesting way, but how do you look at that data and respond?
1: So uh, one way to think about u- universities and, 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 the, and the data point you just said is that in some ways they have been selectors of a certain type of people or a certain class of people, a set of privilege. So that in a way, basically what you're getting is you're just getting a system that is producing the results of its filtration. So it's not what happens at the university. It's all the indicators and inequalities and life circumstances that happen before you get there, right? So we know that the UK, you know, the stats on this again are really clear that the type of people who go to university does not reflect the entire population. So now what would happen if every single person in the UK had a university degree? You know, what would the, what would the data look like then? But I think the point is, That's why you can't just take universities and say they're not working, therefore we're going to stick everyone on an online course. Like it has to be something that is as rich and robust and create and really, really, again, changing people's trajectories and outcomes. It has to mean something. So we want to really define what professional apprenticeships mean. And we want the white hat apprenticeship to mean something extraordinary. So it's not, oh, I just did an apprenticeship. No, I did an apprenticeship at white hat. It's the same get the same caliber as if you worked at google or you went to oxbridge or whatever it, it really means something and and that's why for example in our model the, the, you know the, it's intensive coaching we're working with a one-on-one coach um, there's a really tight s- cycle of feedback we i mean the amount that we know about apprentices still blows me away you know supporting them on all these different levels it's highly personalized it's highly tailored and also we're able to to select for things that the traditional system misses so and We look at the the, the likely outcomes that you would have gotten in the school that you went to and how you actually performed you know p- things like people who didn't go to university but worked for a year or two in customer service you you're, you got actually examples of leadership and the ability to serve people and the ability to, to you know, do good professional work that really don't get picked up on a lot of times in other systems so so we re- we look at that whole package because you're exactly right, Jenny. This has to be saying. That, that doing a white hat apprenticeship really, really means something, and it's got a challenge that the only way to get that thing is
0: university. I saw um, Edelman say that right now in the UK, 50% of people go to university, and that your big, hairy, audacious goal is that you change the system so that 35% of school leavers choose an apprenticeship. That number is about six to eight now. Is that right? yeah that 's right yeah. so that 's kind of how the landscape will change let 's talk a little bit about how white hat works because you were just starting to talk about this intensive training and coaching model. Um, how do you get your apprentices and what are you looking for?
1: yeah, we screen for a bunch of different things, and uh, part of what we 're looking for is character and um, you know how do they how do they behave um, you know, and, and and how does that show up? We look for track record, but we don 't look for track record again in the traditional sense of do you check these boxes, but rather In different circumstances, how did you perform? What are the, you know, where did you, where did you shine? What are your special skills? Are you you willing to be resilient Are and and are you coachable? So a really, really big thing that we've collected a lot of data around and focus heavily on is coachability. So can you take feedback and can you grow? And that's really, really critical. One thing that I also love about our model though, is if people don't demonstrate those things, we often direct them to services or places where they can get skills and come back. So if we have someone who, for example, struggles with coachability, there are actually resources and charities out there that will help people get into a you know, different mindset. But we're able to say to people, great, you know, you're, you're ready for work, or actually, you know, here's some great things you can do. And when we put people in front of employers, we're able to do really good matching. So um, one of the large tech companies we work with, nine out of every 10 people we put in front of them, they hire, right? So that's a really high um, rate of, of, um, of success and, and, and very different from kind of applying to that company off the street. So, so that that matching is really, really important. And then, and then when they come in to the apprenticeship, obviously they're, they're coming in for a very specific area of expertise, and they're they're spending about eighty percent of their time in their job, and the, and about twenty percent of their time getting trained with skills that they immediately apply to their job. So they'll they they have a coach who is an industry professional, someone who really is top of their game. And it I love interviewing coaches. Our coaches are incredible. I call them the lifeblood of our organization. They, they know their subject material inside and out, but they also are just really, really good at teaching and connecting with people and making stuff very, very practical. So they will make sure that apprentices get it. And again, they will vary their, their style and their approach for the different apprentices. And they're delivering you know, structured content, right? So you have to actually know the, the, the subject matter that you're, that you're practicing in your work. Um, and at the same time, they do one-on-one coaching. So they have, a, they have these one-on-one coaching sessions with apprentices, and they also meet regularly with line managers. So you get a really nice triangulation of apprentice, line manager, and coach data and feedback. And and all that goes into making sure that apprentices are immediately and ongoing successful. There are parts of our programs that we front load content slightly, but in general, the idea is, you know, you're really learning and doing the job at the same time. And then after the program is over, so let's say 12, 14 months, and they go through a, a formal evaluation process, and they get um, that certificate or accreditation from, um, in this case, the UK government. And um, that means something. And so put some numbers behind this for me so I understand scope. So we've had, in the last two years, we've had 100,000 applications. Um, 2% of those folks entered our screens candidate pool. Um, 52% of people have been hired from underrepresented and ethnic minority backgrounds. 53% for women. And more than one in three have what we would call a contextual flag. So that's something like you know, the background they grew up in or, or some sort of disadvantage. on our program itself. We have a 90% completion rate. We have 75% of all of our folks and um, who go through that endpoint assessment get a merit or distinction. And by the way, that is more than the national average for people who just pass. So that is that, that, that's pretty significant. Sixty percent of our apprentices get a promotion while they're actually on apprenticeship, and seventy-eight percent stay at the company. So that's what it looks like, and those numbers they really outperform the, the national benchmark for the industry.
0: And so, what have you found works and what doesn't about what companies need and what the apprentices that you're choosing need? I think
1: so. I think a few things. I mean, on the on the company side, we we certainly continue to evolve our model and make sure that it fits with what companies want. I think. One thing that can be uh, an interesting conversation and and, and a challenge is the way that companies and line managers, for example, work with with people. So one thing that can be a challenge is is, is if you're talking about apprentices early in their career, line managers that are managing them are not necessarily super amazing, experienced managers. They might be managers managing for the first time. So part of what we've had to do is figure out how to support and work with those line managers and in some cases, we actually run mini training sessions or sessions for them. So when COVID hit, for example, we knew that we needed to modify the, some of the content, the training that we were doing for apprentices. Now we modified it in big ways because we had to move everything online and figure out how to support them. And gosh, how do you know if someone's depressed if you don't see them? You know, what, what are the you know how do how do you support people in all the things that don't show up over um over distance learning? But we also did some sessions on working through crisis. So how do you know how to support apprentices with the right mind frame when COVID hit. And then what we found really quickly is gosh, you know, line managers could benefit from this as well. So we ran something called leadership in crisis for all the line managers of our apprentices. So we've had to definitely learn about that. Um, you know, different types of companies in different industries need different things as well. So uh, we've we've had to we've learned to be you know pretty upfront about our expectations for how apprentices can and need to learn. So and it doesn't, doesn't help anyone if we don't say, gosh, you know, this is an apprenticeship. But the person does need to be spending time training, not just working. So we so we have to arrange that and get that right up front. On the apprenticeship side, when um, we continue to to constantly use data and 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 then kind of feedback into our process where where things aren't working or can be better. I think one one really good example and one thing that's really tough is we're talking when you're talking about systemic access gaps and you're talking about systemic. Um, opportunity gaps, we do have to turn people away where it kind of kills us, right? So if someone doesn't have certain basic skills, they're not gonna be successful in their role. And they're also not gonna pass the national assessments that they need to pass in order to get the, um, the certificate or the you know get the accreditation. So you could say, well gosh, you know, shouldn't you be serving everyone? Yeah, yes, we should. And you know, we we need to work with again partners and providers who can who can support that upskilling? So those are exactly the type of folks that we would direct to other services to have to have them come back when they're ready.
0: Where are companies? And I'm sure there's a lot of variation, but try to give people a sense as to where companies are right now in their own evolution about learning internally.
1: Yeah, I mean it, it's it's definitely constant evolution. I think I think one of the things that has been kind of an opportunity and a challenge in the last I don't know ten so ten or so years is the the the, the clear data of what isn't, isn't working that's been made possible through online learning. There's lots of examples at Coursera, for example, of where professors had been teaching a course and thought it was very successful. And when you put it online and actually look at where people stop watching videos, tune out, get assessments wrong, because you know, Coursera allows you to, to assess in real time, then they get the little bit of a surprise that actually what they thought was working wasn't. So you see the same thing in the company space where, it, where there's increasing pressure to prove that what you're investing in works. I mean, I think we're still on a journey. I, I think when MOOCs happened, everyone thought, gosh, this is gonna solve everything. You know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna get, you know, Linda or LinkedIn Learning or Coursera or EdX or whatever, and gosh, you know, everyone's gonna love it. And it, it has helped in lots and lots of ways, but, it, but it's not the answer. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and, and the most interesting conversations I'm having is with the senior leaders of companies around the world who are saying, we know that as employers, we basically are going to be responsible for someone's learning for the rest of their career. So, you know, whether they go, whatever they do at the front of their career, once they're in organizations, you know, that's that's where a lot of learning is happening. But we're not trainers. You know, we're not education
0: providers. So right. we need those partnerships in place. And that's where White Hat comes in. That's exactly right, yeah. Yeah. What has COVID-19 been like? How has it affected your business, apprenticeships, you know, generally, and what have you been doing? Obviously, this is not the way that we thought the year was going to go
1: For, for in, in some very specific ways, but in, in other ways, actually, we are exactly on track with the growth that we projected, and we are exactly on track with, with where we thought our business was, was, going, was going to grow. Now, what happened in March is that we put everything online in nine days. We now do all of our delivery face-to-face but remote. We also trained all of our staff in working remotely. We trained them in safeguarding remotely. We trained them in making the delivery model slightly different. So it's, it's hard to be on a long Zoom call. So we've had to you know break delivery up. We've had to have other ways of checking in with people. So how do we, how do we check in with people more regularly to know that they're okay? Because again, we don't have those before and after sessions, those really critical moments where someone comes up to you after a coaching session and says, actually, I'm really struggling or actually I didn't want to ask this in the session, but like, I don't know how to do this or what do I do? Or I think my line manager's upset with me or all those types of things. We also, I think have started to have within our, our company itself, much more vulnerable conversations. We have something in White hat that we do every Monday as part of our team meeting which is called Thought of the week And often that thought of the week it's, it's, it always comes from a senior leader but often that thought of the week is very revealing. It's been an opportunity for us I think to go deeper and to, and to allow our leaders to be more more vulnerable which, which allows everyone to be more vulnerable and then that ripples out into our apprenticeship community. Now what's interesting is if you look at the, just the numbers, if you just look at the numbers of apprenticeships that are happening, what you'll see at large is that the number of apprenticeships has gone down, right? That's been written about, there's been lots of articles about that. That has not been our personal experience of, of doing business in this time. So our apprenticeships, um, the number of apprenticeships we're doing per quarter has more than doubled. Um, and, I, and I think that's just a, a that's, that would have been our natural growth trajectory, but it's been really reassuring to see that that's happening even in this time. And I think to, again, to speak to the quality of our delivery
0: So what do you think explains the distinction between sort of what's happening nationally and what's happening with you guys? I think
1: the thing that's really not easy to explain, but the way I would say it is the DNA of White Hat is really different to other similar companies. So I was MD at another company that as part of it has, you know, apprenticeships um, previously. And, and, and what I can say about White Hat is we, like, we are hiring people who are not just coming to work, you know, to deliver apprenticeships. Like they are, they are coming because they want to like actually contrib- contribute to a, an entirely different model for training and, and education. Everyone that we screen to work at White Hat, we look for eight values that are, you know, on our website, we talk about a lot, but there are things like integrity, putting apprentices first, um, that good people win. And I've never worked at an organization where you have such high performers who are so nice. Like everyone is really, really nice. And I think when you screen for values, you end up with a really, really special place to be and work. And then there's just this ethos. So when something goes wrong, one of our values is we're all owners. So we just fix it. And and it it makes it, there's no dramas. It just makes it really, really easy to sort stuff out. And so I think, I think that kind of culture is actually in lots of ways really suited to a global pandemic because it means we're just going to keep pivoting and and we're just going to sort stuff out. But at the core of it, that again, that relationship with the apprentice hasn't changed. I think that's a big deal. So it's that, and it's that relationship with the apprentice that gets them to probably give us more data than other organizations because they'll, they'll come to us or they'll come to their coach, really, most of the time and say, this is what's really going on for me and how do, how do we deal with this? And I think that's the challenge in, in, in a lot of educational settings is you only get the data that's in front of you. So, you know, does someone feel comfortable or safe telling you what's really going on in their life? Well, they're only going to do that if the relationships there.
0: Let's talk a little bit about Google career certificates. So Google's just announced its six-month collection of courses designed to help participants get qualifications and high-paying jobs. They'll consider it the equivalent of a four-year degree. They're trying to get other companies on board. What do you make of this? How does it intersect with your mission and practice?
1: I think the really interesting question that gets raised here is, who has the authority to decide something's valuable? So who has the authority to decide that something's valuable for your career? And we've all bought into this idea that universities and the university system has authority. And, and, you know, that happens through a credential process and there's a regulatory process and all these things. And in some ways, Google is challenging that and saying, well, shouldn't employers also have a seat at the table to say, if I think this thing is, is just as valuable, then, then why isn't it? Um, And, you know, why would I have to go through, you know, that process over there? um, And if I think that, that I, can, that I can offer that value. So I, I think we're going to see more of that. Now, of course, the, the tricky part as a consumer, as a company, is we use, we use certification and we use brands as shortcuts. So it's, it's a, why university is also valuable because your brain can just go, okay, great, you've got that thing, great, let's move on, even though we know that not all university certificates are, are, are equal. But I think that in some ways it's an important challenge to the system. I think it will be really, really interesting to, to see how educational entities respond to that, you know, and, and probably we'll see different hybrid models or folks looking to, 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 to kind of partner in this space. But the other thing that's going to matter is portability. So internal training is great, but you can't take it with you. So as individuals move around more and more in their companies, they need something that's portable. And again, that's where recognized certificates, whether it's from a company or universities are important. I will be very, very, very interested to see how the next year goes. So if people continue to be learning from home, and universities continue to be remote. Again, this value from money question is just going to get louder, and at some point, you'll really start to see people questioning kind of where are dollars or pounds flow,ing where should they flow, what's the role of government, and uh, and you know and how should training actually work?
0: And we talked about sort of calling for a revolution in higher education. I guess I'm curious in this particular moment, amidst COVID, and as you say, uh, a sort of acceleration. Of looking closely at higher ed. Are we in the midst of it? It takes a really long time for things to change and it takes a long time for very
1: established things to change. So I think we're very much at the beginning of this conversation. Um, in some ways, the, the, how long the pandemic goes will accelerate how quickly this is dealt with or not. I mean, you've seen that in companies, right, where uh, the, the, the technical digital transformation of companies has accelerated because it's had to so again, it, you know, if this goes on for another year, I think you'll get different results and, it'll, and the conversation will accelerate faster than if it ends next month, which I don't think it will. Educational institutions, higher ed, government spending, this is an oil tanker, right? So it's not going to turn quickly, but I think that turn is starting to happen.
0: If you were doing your own timeline of sort of the revolution in learning, what have been your sort of three big pivot points? If the invention of the MOOC was one, um, what have been some of the others? So I, I mean, so I would say one of the big things that happened is in the early 90s,
1: you started having a different type of person going into the education space. So so in lots of ways, Wendy Kopp, who founded Teach for America, has had this global impact. So, you know, senior Princeton had this idea, let's get people to come and teach for two years in the most underprivileged schools in the U.S. You know, let's fix a real problem, but also expose people to to, to the challenges. What that's done is that has led to a very, again, a very different type of person who's going and working in education. And what that looks like now with an alumni movement, it's creating a, an, a group of people who have had a catalytic experience that's gotten them fired up about education, but they also know something about education because they, they did it. They taught. they were teachers. And then they go into all these different spaces. So they've, you've, got, you've got politicians, you've got people working in ed tech, like at Coursera, a number of us were Teach for America alums. Um, at, at, at White Hat, we've got a number of Teach First alums. But you're getting, again, a, just a, a, different, a different type of, of, of individual who's thinking about the future of the education system and, by the way, has the access and the resources and the education you know, to, to actually make those changes. So I think, I think that's a really, really, really big moment that I think about. Um, I mean, you mentioned MOOCs. I think that's another. And I think we'll look back at COVID and say that's been a forcing function as, as, an, as another one of these turning points, which is to say it do, does it actually make sense the way we're doing things. And if we can't teach kids uh, you know, online quickly – what's underneath that as well. So what is it that makes, things, that makes our system so, so slow to respond? So it'd be, it'll be interesting,
0: but I think this will be seen as one of those moments. How confident are you that the tools you have to do what you need to do online are as good as they need to be or good enough for what you need to do? I guess I, guess I always wear two hats on these types of things. Like one is
1: I stand by the data and, 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 and the, again, the benefit of what we're doing is that there's not a long time to be, between delivering and seeing the results right it's immediate so if there's an issue in the job we know about it right away and and we and we deal with it um, uh, if there's an issue in something you know not being effective or or you know apprentices not getting it or you know that then we then we can deal with that so I think again from the data from a data perspective our employers are, are really happy obviously they're buying a lot more apprenticeships and they're also um, giving us really good feedback so we know that from our, from our data points now the second hat though for me is like I'm never satisfied right I'm always kind of looking at what it is that needs to be next. And if we're going to scale, we don't do any online learning. I think that's the right way to start. Some of the best tech companies in the world have started by figuring out what they are really good at first and then hard coding stuff. And I, I, I think we've done that in the right way, but I, but I don't always think that it is the best way to learn really basic stuff um, or the best use of a coached apprentice's time for the coach to be teaching everything, like how to write a professional email, for example. So we're actually... You know, building some of those online modules now. but We need to be really careful about that. So, and um, we don't want to lose, you know, the soul and the character of what we do and we won't, but I, but I don't think that we're, you know, we're making, making enough use of all the, um, all the things that are out there yet. And, and again, we're working there.
0: If we look at the challenges we have, which can be racism- inequality, uh, you know, economic devastation at this particular moment. (laughs) I mean, there's so many challenges, but um, to me, the inequality one is such a key one. And I feel like I can look at this and say, um, here's a potential solution. And I can also look at it and say, oh, my gosh, is there the risk that this could drive it further?
1: Well, I think I think if the if the question you're asking about the risk is, are we saying that some of the same people with the good universities and this apprenticeship thing just becomes something for everyone else? I mean, that's definitely not what we see or what we want. So what we're seeing is the quality of people who are coming out of our apprenticeships are, is exceptional. And, and that's the key, right? That, the key is, is that you are, we are creating a an opportunity and then a reality of everyone's going to want these people and they do. Right. So, so like, like those numbers are crazy, right? The number of people of applications that we have, the, the people we're able to bring in the, the client list that we work with, you know, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Cantars, the Just Eats, the, you know, it, we work with just really, really, really exceptional companies and they're having, they're hiring our apprentices to do, you know, their core roles. And, and again, 78% of those people stay in those companies and continue to grow in that business. So I, I think that the model is already speaking for itself, but we, we want to scale, right? We want to prove that it isn't just a um, uh, something that works at the scale we're currently at, but, but really will change that system. And by the way, we'll continue to have these types of conversations because we need to raise a profile of apprenticeships. Most people still want you know, professional apprenticeships. What does that mean? I still usually have to start by
0: explaining that. That is the challenge, right? I mean, vocational education, for example, in Finland has a good reputation. And so it's this virtuous cycle, whereas it's not in other parts of the world. And how do you give it that? I think you're saying by creating really talented and employable apprentices.
1: And parents care about their kids. You want to know that your kid is doing something that's going to be a stamp on their future. So part of this, again, is about bringing parents along, educating And then reporting the data equally as well, right? So oftentimes you see university data reported and we want to see outcomes data reported for both apprenticeships and university. So you're having the same conversation, right? So so the point isn't what what did you do? It's kind of what are the results?
0: All right, very quickly, best thing you've read about education, favorite book, article, magazine? I recently rewatched
1: about four times in the last week um, Ken Robinson's Our School's Killing Creativity. And every time I watch that, I'm not less inspired. So I think if people are going to do one thing, I would say, watch that TED Talk. Um, it's, you know, it's a very, very good 20 minutes. Best thing, not about education? So I'll just say, and I'll cheat and say the, la- the last thing I read that was to- that was not about education and is fictional and is like a very light and good read is Rodham, which is the story of if Hillary hadn't married Bill. And I just read it for fun. What actually it was really, is was really it raised a lot of good questions about gender. So, so if you're looking for a light read, that also makes you
0: think, I really enjoyed it. Perfect. And are you binge watching anything? I don't really watch that much TV. So <laughs> no. <laughs> Not <laughs> okay. even in COVID? I mean, I
1: realize we're all working 10 times as hard, but. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I've, I've, my, my COVID behavior change has been, I, I run every day and I talk on the phone constantly.
0: So. All right. Those both sound very, uh, well, one of those sounds very healthy and one of those sounds like the thing we all need to do these days. So (laughs) thank you so much for your time. This has been really interesting and I've learned a lot. Oh, it's been great. Thank you, Danny. What struck me most about this conversation is the sheer ambition of getting 35% of school leavers to choose apprenticeships. Does this simply replicate inequalities and overlook the huge population who currently choose neither? But in a world where students are training for jobs that don't yet exist, University is cripplingly expensive, and a global pandemic is upending everything we know about work, a new model is clearly needed. White Hat, with its unique high-touch approach, appears to have enormous opportunity to scale. Screening for coachability seems smart. I certainly understand the value of a good coach, and it also gets away from the box ticking that often comes with traditional recruitment. I really love the idea of creating a community too, where individuals are encouraged and supported to grow and adapt We all need that. And I'm certainly trying to figure out what my superpower would be. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.